We'll now turn to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we again have the privilege of opening up God's word for our instruction. Even as we have sung his word this morning and read a portion from Isaiah, speaking of a time when Isaiah suffered humiliation and was made a spectacle to the world on behalf of the message to be preached on behalf of the Lord. We read about that very thing, that very kind of thing, in the case of the apostles here today in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy word, for it is the infallible, the inspired, and therefore inerrant word of the living God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You were already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things, until now. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading, its exposition, and its hearing. In recent sermons, as we've been making our way through 1 Corinthians, we have seen Paul uses certain metaphors for his labors and for those labors of Apollos, saying that their work is one ministry, not different ministries, but one ministry in Christ. And he compared it to agriculture, saying, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase in chapter 3, verse 6, and then He also used the metaphor of construction, saying in chapter 3, verse 10, that he had laid a foundation and another had built on it, meaning mainly Apollos in that context. And he later used the metaphors of galley slaves, we saw, and stewards. So the lowest of servants to the highest of servants. And he begins today's passage by saying that he has spoken figuratively. He's, He's used these things to talk about himself in Apollos. Verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself in Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. If Paul's labors and Apollos' labors were all part of one ministry in Christ, 
than pitting one against the other and saying, I'm of Paul, no, I'm of Apollos. That, that's a symptom of arrogance, not on the part of Paul or Apollos, but on the part of the Corinthian Christians. They're, they're being puffed up, Paul says, on behalf of one against another, arguing over who's better when that's not what it's about. And Paul wrote these metaphors for their sakes that they would cease their arrogance, their arrogant and their divisive attitudes. His statement in verse 6 is explained in the following verses. You'll notice that verse 7 begins with the word for, meaning what I just said is true because of what I'm about to say. And you'll notice also that uh, verse 9 then also has the same conjunction at the beginning, for, it's gar in the Greek. And then there's another for in the middle of the verse. This time it's uh, another Greek word, hoti, which we often translate as because. It basically means the same thing. So the, the second half of verse 9 is really the grammatical focus for us. It's where we focus when we're wanting to try to understand this passage. For, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So that will be our starting point today. And we'll jump off from there to deal with the rest of the passage. The apostles have been made a spectacle to the world, Paul says. And he compares them to men condemned to die in the arena. In the following verses, as he explains how the apostles have been made a spectacle, he thus exposes just how silly the divisions in the church at Corinth actually are, because they are based on pride in men who have no use for personal pride. And we'll learn from their examples, from the examples of the apostles, not to be arrogant, to endure discomfort for Christ's service, to work hard for his kingdom, to return good for evil, to be willing to be hated by the world for Christ's sake, to hold fast to the scriptures, and to depend on God's grace. So let's start with verse 9, and then we'll dive into the rest of the passage from there. So again, the second half of verse 9 is the grammatical focus here. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The we there, of course, refers to uh, directly to the apostles. So the, the, it's the direct object of the last sentence, the apostles. We uh, He may be using the term more broadly than just to speak of the twelve and himself, uh, could be including Apollos here. He's been talking about Apollos quite a bit uh, as one sent by God to serve the Corinthian church. The, the word apostle means sent one, and any faithful and true preacher is sent by God in a sense. But more narrowly, we certainly know this is absolutely true of the apostles of Jesus Christ, the, those who were particularly chosen by him, the twelve and Paul, men commissioned directly by Christ himself, and sent into the world with his authority. As we read the book of Acts, as we read the letters of the apostles in the New Testament, as we study the testimony of early church fathers who knew the apostles or who knew the people who were trained by the apostles for ministry, we find that Paul's statement is verified as it applies to him and the other apostles of Jesus Christ. They have been indeed made a spectacle to the world. The word he uses there for spectacle, the Greek word theatron, you may hear its similarity to our English word theater. That's where we 
get our word theater from. The apostles became a spectacle. They were put on display like performers in a theater. Both angels and mankind could observe what was happening to the apostles. So when Paul says they were a spectacle to the world, literally the cosmos, he includes both the world we can see, the world of men, the world of mankind, and the world we cannot see, the the world of angels. The holy angels observe with interest the work that Christ does through his servants on earth. They do not delight, of course, in the suffering of God's servants, but no doubt they rejoice that those sufferings are being used by God for his good purposes, as well as we are instructed to rejoice in that fact. Now, by contrast, mankind observes the difficulties of Christ's servants and, by and large, delight in those sufferings. They delight in the suffering of God's people. And as the second part of verse 9 is a further explanation of the first part of verse 9, we look there to see what kind of spectacle or display is made of the apostles. And we see it's not a positive metaphor here. Uh, This is not like parents or teachers asking a child to display his or her talents for drawing or singing or whatever. Here, stand up in front of everybody and sing. Because we delight so much in the talent that God has given you. No, that's not what the kind of positive metaphor Paul's using here. He's using a very negative metaphor. He says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. The verb there displayed is literally set out. So God is set in front of the world. The apostles, like men condemned to death. That goes perfectly with the the concept there. Those concepts go well together, being displayed, being set out, and being condemned to death. Notice first, though, this is God's doing. It's His plan. It is for His good purposes. Not that the apostles would prosper and be glorified, as we see in this context, part of the reason as we go on, we'll see in both this letter and the next, that part of the reason, or the excuse anyway, that some are using to tell people, don't take Paul all that seriously, is to say, look at how much he suffers. If God were really on his side, would he be suffering so much? And he's saying, well, that's not what God set us forth for, not to be an example of prosperity and of these supposed blessings that fall on the servants of God from heaven like that, those come. But he didn't set us forth in the first place to be prosperous and to glorify, to be glorified before mankind, but rather to suffer before mankind and before the angels. Jesus told the twelve in Matthew 10, 24, and 25, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and his servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? If the world is willing to revile and mistreat Jesus, how much more will they be willing to revile and mistreat his servants? Remember, in this era, Corinth was a Roman colony. Citizens of Rome, especially retired soldiers, settled there. 
They would have been very familiar not only with the Greek-style games that took place there, the Isthmian games, but they would also be familiar with the gladiatorial games. And Paul knows this. He knows that this is something that went on in many places that he had traveled, and it went on at Corinth. In such games, at the beginning of the day, you'd have some condemned criminals. Often they might be left in the arena to face hungry beasts, be torn by dogs or lions or bears. This is the kind of thing that would happen uh, decades later to many Christians. We hear stories about Christians being thrown to the lions, that kind of thing. Uh, That comes not in this period, but a few decades later, especially in the 90s AD, the first century. And it would go on uh, for the next couple of centuries where periodically Christians would be persecuted and be uh, fed to wild beasts in the arena. Well, that would be the kind of thing that would happen first here, but that's that wasn't going on particularly with Christians as yet. And that's not the comparison Paul makes here. After the opening bloodshed, there would often then be the professional gladiators. And these would be somewhat armored, and they would have weapons that they were specially trained with, and different types of, of fighters would be pitted against each other. They'd use armor and weapons of various kinds. But the day was often capped off by a fight between men condemned to die. And so when Paul says we've been displayed last, that's what he's comparing them to, the apostles to. These men condemned to die would be brought out naked, a spectacle to all, given weapons and forced to fight to the death. The last survivor might get a reprieve. When Paul says the apostles have been set out last, that's who he's comparing them to. Those men condemned to death who would fight in the arena. How is it that the apostles are displayed as a spectacle for the world like such condemned men? Well, Paul is not saying God is cruelly humiliating them the way that the Romans would cruelly humiliate these condemned criminals. He'd be acknowledging that The Lord expects the apostles to suffer. And Paul here expects that most of the apostles will probably die public deaths for the gospel's sake, which will happen to all of them except for the apostle John. The apostle John, the son of Zebedee, is the only one who lived to an old age and died of old age. The rest were either murdered or executed. Rather, Paul is saying that God is pleased to work out his plan for the church through uh, not the comfort, not the acclaim, not the prosperity of the apostles, but through their suffering. By the mistreatment that the apostles received from the wicked world, God will do great things. And you and I can look back and see indeed he did. The following verse verses, I should say, show how the apostles have become a spectacle to the world. In these verses, as well as in the previous verses of the passage we read, we learn several examples, several things from the examples of the apostles. Number one, we learn not to be arrogant or proud. This apparently is a problem in Corinth, as Paul noted, the problem of being puffed up on behalf of one against another. 
So I don't mean here when I say proud the way in which a parent might be pleased with a child and say, I'm proud of you. But think of pride as thinking too highly of oneself. Paul says in verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. This is actually a continuation of some sarcasm that Paul is using in this passage that we get particularly in verse 8, and we'll deal with that in a bit. The Corinthians think that they're wise and strong, or some among them anyway, that they're distinguished, but they're actually being arrogant. And by contrast, the apostles set the example of humility, of not being arrogant. They're willing to be fools for Christ's sake. Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake. Remember that the message that they preached, he said in this letter, is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. Paul says, we're perfectly willing to be considered fools for Christ's sake. They are weak as men judge such things. They're, They're not among the mighty of the world, the wealthy, the politically powerful. They're not honored by the world, but dishonored. So they're not distinguished. They're dishonored. So how foolish is it for the Corinthian brethren to think of themselves as wise, strong, and distinguished and think that's a good thing? Why do they desire those things to be considered wise and strong and distinguished in the world's eyes? How arrogant to think of themselves as better than the apostles of Jesus Christ. Now, lest we begin to think, well, you know, those were those wayward, foolish Corinthians way back then. We won't be like that. Well, be aware of how easy it is to fall into the sins of pride and arrogance. As God sanctifies his people, we can easily begin to think of ourselves as better than those who are not being sanctified. When really, we would be no different if it weren't for a free gift from God that we in no way earned. If I find myself acting more morally than my neighbor, it isn't because I'm a better person, it's because God has chosen to work in me. So beware of becoming like the Pharisee who in Jesus' parable, thanked God that he was better than other men, who was confident not in the Lord, but in his own righteousness. He'd rather like the publican in that parable who says, Lord, have mercy on me, a miserable sinner. Jesus says he's the one who went down from the temple justified, counted righteous by God. Now Paul says in verse 6 that he has spoken figuratively of Christ's ministry through him and Apollos, and he wants the Corinthians not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. So there he's warning still against pride. The factionalization of the congregation there in Corinth over who favored which teacher was born not from a humble love for those teachers, but from their own pride and arrogance. I want to be associated with this guy who I think is a better teacher. The apostles, by contrast, 
did not see themselves as in competition with one another, so that you, it's, they, I want more people saying I'm of Paul than of others, right? Uh, would be Paul's attitude if he thought he were in competition with the other apostles, but he's not. They're not in competition with any other faithful preacher of the gospel like Apollos. They saw themselves as part of one ministry of Christ. They set the example of humble service to Christ. From their example, we learn not to be arrogant or prideful, therefore. Secondly, we learn from the apostles' example to endure discomfort for Christ's service. Verse 11, To the present hour we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. That doesn't mean that every servant of Christ is going to suffer in the same way. But the life of service to Christ is not one of ease. It demands much of Christ's disciples. Matthew 16, 24-26, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that statement has gotten so tritely used, such that people think that any sort of minor inconvenience is the cross I have to bear in their life. But... Jesus is talking about being willing to take up the instrument of one's own death and follow him. Be ready to be dead for his sake so that we might live. For whoever desires, he says, to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Think of Paul saying here to the Corinthians, You think you're distinguished, but we're dishonored. What profit is it to be so distinguished and so honored by the world if you lose your soul? Jesus says, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If your hardship is less than that of others, like the apostles, it doesn't mean you're better than them. The God likes you better, which is what the Corinthians seem to presume. Thank God for your blessed circumstances if you don't have to suffer as much as another. But be ready to endure great discomfort for the sake of Christ. You don't have to go looking for this discomfort, but be ready to endure it if it's necessary. It can be emotional discomfort as you're rejected by loved ones. That probably happens to every true Christian. It might be financial discomfort as you're ostracized or to use the lingo of today, canceled because you're not politically correct, you're not so-called woke enough. You might simply pay more for goods and services because in serving Christ you're trying to be honest. It might be physical discomfort. You may find yourself at some point beaten or imprisoned or even killed because you believe the gospel. And we certainly have brethren in other parts of the world, East Asia and the Middle East, that suffer those things for the sake of the gospel. You might be called upon by God to give up certain material comforts so that you can serve as a missionary in a part of the world that's not very easy to live in, particularly for somebody who's grown up with the comforts that we have here. Perhaps like the Covenanter ministers who founded our denomination... You'll be forced out of your home, lose your house of worship, or even be hunted down to be tortured and killed. 
Who knows what kind of suffering you'll be called upon to follow, to take upon yourself for the sake of the gospel. Be ready to endure discomfort for the sake of Christ's service. A third thing we see here as we learn from the Apostle's example, to work hard for the kingdom of Christ. The first part of verse 12. And we labor, working with our own hands. That's really uh, clearly part of the example of the Apostle's humility as well. The Apostles did not demand for themselves what they commanded the church to do for pastors and teachers. In other words, pay them a living wage. Paul said, rather, we worked with our own hands so that you wouldn't have to pay us. And it was helpful to the church as the church is just getting off the ground and being formed in a new town. We, we take this into account even now when we do church planting. That we don't expect that a new church plant is going to be able to support a pastor by themselves. And so we have funds set aside for that kind of thing until they can get on their feet, so to speak. And so we even have a plan usually of diminishing giving to that church from the denomination. Paul's going to state explicitly in chapter 9 of this letter that churches need to pay those who are feeding them God's word. But in addition to this, being part of their discomfort that the apostles are willing to endure for the gospel, we note that the word labor means hard work. The apostles set the example of doing hard work to proclaim the gospel to the world. Be ready to do that yourself. Be ready to work hard at proclaiming the gospel to others. It can be painstaking. A fourth thing we see is from the Apostles' example, we learn to return good for evil. Starting in the second part of verse 12, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. Being reviled, we bless. They're being reviled. People are treating them with scorn, throwing unloving words at them, hateful speech. Not the modern idea of hate speech where anything I don't like that you say is considered hateful, but but they're actually saying really hateful things, often lies, about the apostles. And What do the apostles do in return? Being reviled, we bless. Instead of returning that kind of evil, they didn't return scorn and unloving words with hateful words of their own. They blessed. They blessed those who cursed them, as Jesus teaches in Luke 6, 28. The word for bless is the same source of our word eulogy. How many funerals have you gone to when you hear somebody get up to give the eulogy and they tell you how awful that person was who's there in the casket? No, sometimes you know that that person may have been a pretty difficult person, but people seem to refrain from saying that at the funeral, right? So we use the word eulogy. It's a good word, literally. Say Say kind things about those who curse them. So learn from the Apostle's example to be kind to those who curse you. Being persecuted, we endure, he says. So don't seek to persecute back when you're persecuted. But patiently endure mistreatment for the gospel. Being defamed, we entreat. To make that more clear, we might render it as being slandered, we answer with loving words. 
Entreating means approaching somebody in authority, for example, and asking something of them. And you, you don't go to a king or some ruler and say, here's what I demand of you. Or how dare you do this? Here's what you need to do. No, you usually say very nicely, oh, your majesty, would you please do this? And so Paul says we speak to people who mistreat us like that. We speak to them lovingly the way we would, and graciously the way we would try to speak to somebody in authority over us. Do not return evil for evil, but return good for evil. A fifth thing we learn from the example of the apostles is we learn to be willing to be hated by the world for the sake of Jesus Christ. Our tendency is to want to be liked. We don't want to be hated. And again, you don't have to go out of your way to make yourself troublesome so that people will hate you. And Peter tells you about uh, when it's good to suffer for the name of Christ. It says not to suffer as an evildoer, but to suffer because you're being a Christian, right? So we don't make ourselves obnoxious so that people will mistreat us and then say, oh, look at how they're mistreating me because I'm a poor Christian. But on the other hand, our tendency is to want to be liked, isn't it? We don't want to go out of our way usually to make people dislike us. But Paul says we have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. The off-scouring, the things that you would wipe off your table or scour off of your pans. You don't keep that stuff, you throw it away. We're being treated like garbage, Paul is saying. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Falsely is, is a key word there. It's not when you do something evil and they say truly you did that evil thing, but when people accuse you of evil falsely because of Christ. Rejoice, Jesus says, and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Be willing to be hated by the world for the sake of Christ. Again, you don't have to go out of your way to make people hate you, but if you just serve Christ faithfully and if people hate you for it, that's just the way it is. The apostles set that example and we can do it. Six. We learn also from this passage to hold fast to the Scriptures. In verse 6, Paul tells the Corinthians, Now these things I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. In numerous places already in this letter, Paul has referred to Scripture with the expression, It is written. Chapter 1, verse 19, and verse 31. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 19. He's expressly quoted Old Testament scripture saying, it is written. So when he says here, don't think beyond what is written, he's pointing them to scripture. If the Corinthians hadn't gone beyond what was taught in the Bible, with its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, they would never have been divided into these factions in the first place. Where does the Bible say, You should choose your favorite leader and factionalize over that in the church and have the cult of of Apollo over here and the cult of Apollos over here and the cult of Peter over here. No, that's based on arrogance, Paul says. Stick with what is written. Brothers of good conscience can be divided over interpretation and application of Scripture. Certainly that happens. 
But so much turmoil could be avoided in the church if we just hold fast to the scriptures themselves. Hold fast to the written word of God. And then number seven, we learn to depend on God's grace. Paul gives us a negative example from the Corinthian behavior here. They show us what not to do. Verse 7, for who makes you differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did, did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, every good thing that Christians have is a gift from God. We did not earn it. It was not a quality innate within myself or within yourself. We received it. It was a gift. So why differ? Why divide over them? They're what God has given us. In verse 8, he speaks sarcastically. You you are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. Now he's not speaking literally here because he then says, and indeed, I wish you did reign. So we know that he's speaking sarcastically when he says you reign. Because I wish it were real, but it's not. He says that we also might reign with you. Paul is saying, you think that you're just fine without us. You think you're like kings even. Well, that would be nice for we could be kings along with you, but that's not the way it actually is. And again, verse 10 shows that they think that they're wise and that they're strong and that they're distinguished. And Paul says, that's not what your aim should be. Paul exposes the foolishness of that kind of thinking and says, don't act as if the gifts you have came from within yourself. They came from God. Don't act as if you didn't receive them. Why are you acting as if you didn't receive these things when you received them? They came from outside of you. Shows a lack of regard for God's grace. If they would depend on God's grace, they would not be so divided. So depend on God's grace. So just a quick recap here. God put the apostles on display as condemned men. And from their examples we learn, do not be arrogant. Endure discomfort for Christ's service. Work hard for His kingdom. Return good for evil. The world will mistreat you. Don't mistreat them back. It's so easy to do that, isn't it? Return good for evil. Be willing to be hated for the sake of Christ. How much or how many opportunities I know I have lost because I feared the judgment of men and wasn't willing to be hated for the sake of the gospel. Be willing to be hated for the sake of Christ. Hold fast to the scriptures and depend on God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you have caused us to receive much. You've given so many gifts to your people. Let us never arrogantly act as if we did not receive these, but that these are our own innate qualities. Grant that we might take these lessons that we learned today here to heart and apply them in our lives in reliance upon your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.